Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Now, in a discussion of this nature, um, there's very little I can do other than maybe point out some of the general features. And we're in a period, uh, you always tell when there's lots of adjectives used, what what type of period you're in. Uh, We're in a period of unparalleled instability, where one crisis for the capitalist class is piling in on top of another. Those crises are coming not singly, but in whole battalions. And it's not a temporary situation. This is a new normal, uh, as we witness uh, the death death agony, if you like, or the period of the death agony of capitalism uh, itself, where tremendous challenges and tremendous opportunities are presented for the labour and the trade union movement, but um, critically also for Marxist, Marxist organisations, um, and in terms of socialist ideas and putting forward the idea uh, that we don't, we're not just in the business really of defending workers' rights, which is, which is of course what we do, but we're in the business of transforming uh, society. And in this period, and it's already evident, we're seeing rapid and very sudden at times changes in consciousness as millions across the world and certainly in Britain are looking for answers, first of all. They're seeking to understand what is happening in their lives and they're looking for alternatives. And just one small example of how people's lives are going to change. This uh, pandemic, um, which is a catastrophe in many, many respects uh, for both the ruling class and the working class, we're going to see, uh, unless the movement is capable of stopping it, incidentally, mass unemployment, four to five million unemployed in Britain. And by the way, I personally think that would be a conservative estimate. I'm old enough to remember the 1980s when they spoke about three million unemployed. Uh, That's what was on the books, if you like. Uh, In actual fact, um, there was far more people unemployed and dispossessed than that. Um, Millions of people who were used to reasonable lifestyles, uh, maybe in some cases quite good lifestyles, are going to be confronted with a benefit system which has been degraded over the course of the past decades by both Tory and new Labour governments and of course uh, the coalition government itself. And uh, that's going to be a very hard shock for people, incidentally. And there's a prospect of mass youth unemployment, where young people who are already been greatly affected by this pandemic will be put in a situation of uh, scrabbling around and trying to get careers. Uh, And these, of course, are explosive conditions. And millions and many hundreds of thousands will be moved into action 
whether they like it or not, whether they want a peaceful life or not. And what they will do, and I think the point that Josh has made is actually correct, they will look to their mass organisations, the trade unions. And in the pandemic already, there is a very clear evidence that workers are moving uh, to their trade unions, putting pressure on uh, their uh, leaders and responding when their leaders act well. Uh, lots of people joining trade unions at the present time, not just in the education unions itself. And the Tories are under uh, unprecedented pressures at the present time. And fight backs have been taking place that are not always as visible as we see. And that's not just to do with uh, the, uh, the media, it's partly to do with the fact that they're not generalised in the way they might be and should be. Uh, and concessions, particularly on issues of safety, have been uh, offered in some cases. Um, there's been unions and individual struggles. Uh, 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 struggles. I've mentioned uh, the NEU, um, and, and Josh has already mentioned in my own union, um, uh, um, the, there's actually strike action in terms of uh, the Tate Gallery. And in the DWP, which is my old department, uh, before I uh, retired, workers there are resisting the government's drive to get them back into work under unsafe conditions. But there is, um, in terms of the government, they're not serious about tackling this pandemic. And I think that is something that we really need to get across to workers, many of whom are actually working that out for themselves. You know, this isn't a question of good faith. It's absolutely clear that they are uh, looking at defending profits in their class, and it is a class issue, this uh, pandemic. Um, th th there is intended confusion, and, and the biggest confusion that they seek to sow is the, the idea that there's some kind of choice between safety and livelihoods. It's intended confusion in the health of the economy. And what is going on, and this has been exposed uh, greatly in, in the current period for millions of workers, is that the degenerate state of the British ruling class and the capitalist class itself, because what we have now, I think it's a reasonably accurate description, we're now dealing with a kleptocracy. That's just a fancy way of saying that these people are robbing us blind and they don't care if we know it. And, you know, the, the best example of that, of course, is that 12 billion has been given to the private sector in terms of the track and trace. Over 50,000 people dead in this country. I think in Vietnam, it's 500. And, and that is the consequences of handing uh, these contracts over to the private sector, to their friends and to their family. 12 billion to put in context, incidentally, I think I'm correct in saying this, is uh, the whole uh, uh, budget for primary care uh, and the National Health Service at, uh, at, at, the, at, at, at the present time. And right-wing leaders or bureaucracies in the trade union movement in periods such as this, they always take the road of conciliationism. And we see that with many leaders in the movement at the present time. They do not seek to offer up an independent class position, analysis and uh, demands, simply because they can't conceive of an alternative. They don't see it's possible to challenge capitalism, even in its neoliberal form, 
let alone transform society itself. And in some respects, uh, you understand this because a lot of them have actually done rather well out of the capitalist system itself. And it means that individual unions or groups of workers are left often to fight on their own rather than united coordinated response. And uh, there's a huge gap uh, in, in, in terms of uh, the, uh, the scale of the problem the working class faces in terms of the pandemic uh, itself, which is a catastrophe, and, uh, and, and, and the response itself. But I think we recognise there's enormous potential to fight back in the interests of workers, to protect safety, to protect jobs, and, and also, in terms of the more advanced workers, imposing in terms, not just of the demands, but uh, the, the question of a transformation of society itself. What kind of society do we want? Do we want a society that can uh, offer us stability or do we want a socialist uh, uh, society? But the trade union bureaucracies, if you wish to describe them as such, um, and, and the leaders who fail to lead, we have to recognise that this is not a situation that's fixed and it's not an unchanging situation. It'd be an error to think that under the crisis that have taken place, there's uh, not just the possibility for massive changes in consciousness, but for workers to move into action, not just in terms of the usual methods of struggle, but also within their unions and, uh, and themselves, putting pressure on leaders and, and, they, uh, and, and they demand and through their democratic organisations that those leaders lead from the front in terms of defending their interests. And I think it's worth saying at this point, even before the pandemic itself, capitalism internationally, but in terms of Britain particularly, is facing a profound crisis. I don't have time, and I'm sure these things will be dealt with in other sessions, but just to give a very small rundown of some of the crises that they're facing. There's obviously the pandemic itself. There's a question of Brexit, um, which is going to cause uh, real problems in, in all sorts of uh, areas. There's a question of mass unemployment. There's a slump, which they reckon, incidentally, and I don't think this is an, an exaggeration, by the way, that the, the most, uh, the deepest slump for a 300 years and uh, they have various political problems. Don't have time to deal with this. I just mentioned it in the passing. The potential breakup of the United Kingdom itself. Next year, we may well be seeing renewed demands for Scottish independence. And the way that uh, the English regions have been treated, particularly in the north, uh, north has become a factor in this uh, uh, situation uh, uh, itself. And workers' lives will be transformed in the coming period because the plan, as far as uh, the bourgeois are concerned, is for workers to pay the price of the pandemic in the same way they paid the price of uh, the crisis in the 2008 uh, crash. And the Tories are elected with an 80-seat majority. And it's... Uh, a rule, if you like, a law, uh, certainly, I think, an inevitability that when the political road is blocked for working class people, they turn to the industrial. I, I, would, I would simply make this point, though. I think that the nature of the rapidity of the crisis that hit the capitalist class, 
there will be uh, a tremendous, uh, uh, if you like, um, uh, linking together, uh, if, if you like, and uh, very rapid consequences flowing from uh, industrial struggle to political action as well. So it'd be a misjudgment to look at the past period and, and that, and that I say really the last 40 years or so, certainly the period I've been active as a reliable guide to how things will develop in, in, in the future. And the ruling class know this too. And the unions in a sense, not the first time in the, in the history of the unions, uh, they're actually at a crossroads. Now unions, of course, are not revolutionary organizations, but given effective leadership, particularly in, in terms of crisis, uh, they're capable of directing mass anger and militancy and prosecuting campaigns of revolutionary struggle, even incidentally in pursuit of limited gains, that collective strength to win concessions in the period of crisis, even in defense of rights and conditions, and even in a period where generally speaking, reforms are not sustainable. It's been a period of the, the ruling class um, grabbing back reforms with collective action. The ruling class will always concede when it's backs against the wall and even the possibility through those struggles of some reforms, even if they're of a very, very temporary nature. And the ruling class understand the power of the unions, even if some of their own leaders don't. And Lenin himself remarked, he said that behind every strike, uh, the ruling class see the hydra of the revolution. The hydra, I'm sure a lot of you know, in Greek mythology was a nine-headed monster. So what he said was behind every strike is a monster in terms of the ruling class. It's uh, get in a strike. And the campaigns, but particularly a strike, gives the workers uh, a sense of collective power, solidarity. And one of the things I've found remarkable over the many years I've been active in the movement is those people who, work colleagues, if you like, who might be the quiet one, in the office or the factory, they are the ones who, when a strike comes along, display hidden talents of organisation, some becoming very good speakers and advocates as well, very good organisers. And strikes pose the question, who's in control? Who, who, who actually runs things? And even in a, a, a workplace a strike or in a, a sector, if you like, or an industry, when industrial action has taken place, it can, if you like, pose questions of dual power. Who actually runs things? Who's actually in control? And, you know, of course, it was referred to last night in, uh, in reference to uh, the history of the Chartists, that the general strike, I don't mean the one or two day general strike, I mean the all out general strike, actually poses the question of political power, the overthrow of governments, and not just the overthrow of governments, uh, the transformation of society itself. And British history, like in other countries, is rich with examples. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the Heath government in the early 70s, which uh, was challenged by the miners. Heath went to the country in an election, said, well, who runs the country? And the answer of the British people was, well, not you, mate. And uh, if, 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 if from that point of view, that was the power of organised labour. And uh, so, as I've said, the ruling class takes the power 
of collective struggle in the trade unions very, very seriously uh, indeed. And that is why since the formation, since the Industrial Revolution from the days of toll puddle, from the days of transportation, right up to the recent anti-tax laws, uh, anti, so not anti-tax laws, anti-union laws, sorry, anti-union laws, we've seen attempts to use the legal system and the judiciary to, to stop struggle. And of course, right-wing trade union leaders uh, themselves have been part of that process. It's not just that they don't uh, support people when they're being victimised. Uh, in my own union, the predecessor union, which is called CPSA, which was once controlled by one of the most extreme right-wing bureaucracies in the trade union movement. I don't know how commonly known this is. That they actually, in the 1980s, didn't just support Thatcher and Tebbit and the trade union um, and, 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 and the trade union laws. They actually advocated them and they actually helped formulate them as a matter of fact. Um, but the coming period, we can see the movement transformed. Um, and, and opposition can take on many forms. And I think part of that is the battles also that have taken place uh, around social movements like Black Lives Matter and within the communities itself. And the unions are uniquely placed in, uh, to, to be able to not just lead those kind of music, uh, uh, those, those kind of uh, struggles, but tie them up, collectivize them, and increase their uh, power. And the union movement will have to adapt to changing circumstances in terms of methods of organization, but we shouldn't be frightened of this. Uh, part of what you might describe as zombie capitalism has been uh, the, pre uh, the production, if you like, of the precariat, you know, workers with two and three jobs. Uh, the gig economy, which has made the problems difficult for organising. Uh, and in the pandemic, you know, we've seen the move towards remote working, which presents problems of how do you develop collective action. But, you know, these things can be double-sided. For example, call centres, uh, which are now uh, quite a big feature of life in this country, in actual fact, are, uh, present tremendous opportunity for organisation uh, and as much as they present uh, fa factory conditions, lots of workers in one place, lots of collective strength and workers in a crisis will always find ways of fighting back. We should never uh, be pessimistic about changes or throw the towel in. In the 1930s, for example, in France, we saw uh, the sit-down strikes which in fact were in the factories, which were a warning, of course, to the ruling class of how workers will find ways of fighting back. There's also a warning to leaders as well that workers will find way of fighting back. And class anger and militants, they will always find ways, despite laws or developments in the workplaces and uh, uh, workplaces, industries and services. And militants saying the fight back doesn't just stop at the factory gate or the office door. Um, in 1968 in France, I think this figure is correct, there were 3 million in unions, but 10 million were actually on strike. So in the coming period, there's one thing we can expect, and that is the unexpected. And nothing is set in stone, and there's enormous critical role of the unions in coming class battles. But, you know, we stress the question of leadership is absolutely critical not just in terms of the movement, what you might describe as the official movement itself, 
But in terms of how Marxists and socialists uh, intervene, revolutionary organisations with the correct orientation to these struggles can not just make all the difference, can be in fact a critical factor. And that is why as Marxists, we don't stand on the sideline. We don't stand on the sideline lecturing workers, just criticising and correcting them or correcting uh, people in, in the movement. Yes, we expose both the capitalists and the right wing and the conciliators, but we have to be, as well as providing the analysts, we have to be the best, uh, uh, we have to be with the workers and the mass movements and the best fighters and leaders. In the last period, is really a warning of the consequences of the wrong approach for the unions and their class. Because in the past 40 years, what we've witnessed is an unremitting class war, taking back the game, the gains won by generations of trade union struggle. We shouldn't underestimate, incidentally, the sheer scale of that. It's been conducted at every level, industrial, political, legal, in terms of policy, in terms of the media, even in the academic world. Uh, and the capitalist class, the bourgeois have used the classic, uh, the, 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 the old classic ideas of divide and rule. And right at the center of the grab and back all of this is the question of cuts and privatization. And we've been, the consciousness has been thrown back. And, con and the Tories have grown in consciousness over the years. Uh, I've grown in, in confidence over uh, the years. What for them was once un unthinkable is now thinkable, and they're trying to implement the unthinkable. And, and that, that, I think, is why it's wrong to underestimate the failure of the Labour movement uh, uh, leadership to confront those attacks. And that is seen even in raw figures. Um, the fall from the 70s and the, uh, the 1970s, where 13 million were organised in the TUC, to 6 million, uh, around 6 million at the present day, although it has gone up, as I've said. Um, you know, it didn't start with Thatcher. The cuts uh, actually started under the Labour government. Uh, you had the so-called winter of discontent, where the idea, which is common in uh, capitalist propaganda, that the unions ran the country, if only. They were actually fighting back against cuts at that particular time. We saw the defeat of the miners, 1984-85, where you know, the, the, you know, many in the leadership of the movement and certainly in Labour stood back uh, rather than offering the un uncompromising solidarity that those workers uh, deserved. And the failure to organise mass coordinated, the mass coordinated campaigns and coordinated action uh, through that decade in particular left isolated groups to fight on their own. And it's no coincidence, incidentally, that when Thatcher was defeated, she was defeated by the mass class solidarity of the non-payment of the poll tax. And there were, there were people at that time argued, incidentally, in the trade union movement, that the council workers, uh, all they needed to do was uh, not uh, deduct poll tax, again, to leave a relatively isolated group of workers to take on their shoulders the whole burden of fighting uh, the government while the rest of the movement stood on and watched. And the lesson has to be repeated time and time again about coordinated action, uh, uh, about mass uh, struggle. And there is, in terms of uh, the right wing in the movement, 
they actually theorise these things. And in the 1980s, they talked about the dented shield. They talked about uh, the right that their concept was new realism, which essentially was just keep your head down, uh, try and save what we can and wait for a Labour government. There's a direct link between that to new Labour itself, where Gordon Brown could stand up in Parliament in 2003 and talk about culling the jobs of 100,000 civil servants, and he was cheered on the Labour back benches. And, you know, the introduction of PFI, uh, uh, the idea of profit without uh, risk. And there are consequences from all these things. And the most recent example, of course, was in the pensions dispute, just um, 2010, 2011, where we saw, incidentally, under the pressure of left-wing unions and left-wing leaders like Mark Sorvotkin, incidentally, in, in terms of PCS, pushed towards uh, a one-day general strike. We reckon there was about 2 million people involved, but immediately after that, with all the potential involved in that, the TUC, right-wing union leaders done a deal behind our back. And what that meant was, behind the back of the workers, not just PCS, incidentally, that emboldened the then coalition government to implement austerity with a vengeance, with catastrophic impacts, incidentally, for the unemployed and the disabled, along with many other workers. But just imagine for a moment, if we had that class solidarity, the miners had won or we'd won on pensions, how that would have changed history. And it's true, the past period, general terms would say we're in a period of defensive uh, struggles, but when struggle does take place, concessions can be won. And even in terms of good left leaderships in the trade union movement, they don't operate in uh, isolation. They operate in the objective circumstances that exist at that time. And uh, that means, yes, there can be some successes, but there's limits to that, particularly in a period of ongoing cuts and privatization. Now in this period, in the pandemic, I think it's absolutely critical that we're arguing for some kind of united, you could call it a program of action, but certainly putting demands um, uh, on, on the trade union leaders to put those demands on the Tories themselves. And, and, and let's just make a couple of points here. Protecting lives comes first. We reject this false choice between lives and the, and the, and the livelihoods. It is meant to confuse. We can be absolutely clear that a major demand has got to be an end to all cuts in privatization Privatisation is only the organised theft, organised legalised theft of our assets and our services. So all outsourced um, services should be brought back in-house. We need a fully integrated, publicly owned NHS. Uh, workers in union should be decided on workplace uh, safety. Nationalisation of the drug companies and incidentally the banks um, and no redundancies. If they're using this pandemic and crisis to cut jobs, we should, we, 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 we should oppose them. We should, if they say they don't have any money, the big companies, we should demand that they open uh, the books. And something which I think is really important, uh, other, 
of course, as well, the privatization of, of, of the utilities as a right to employment, but also a fair and equitable benefit system. And if the TUC put forward such a programme and be support, supported by the unions, it would have the potential to build enormous uh, support. There's tremendous anger, there's tremendous receptiveness out there, there's new forces out there coming into action. Women workers now constitute a higher percentage in the trade unions, uh, and groups like nurses who traditionally shied away from action and campaigning are now fighting for uh, 15% in terms of pay, which should be fully supported. And it's a scandal that some union leaders do not uh, uh, um, uh, support that demand. And we have to demand of, our, of, of leaders in the movement not to act as a diplomatic core of the trade union movement, but to act as uh, the leaders, not uh, scurrying between the employer and uh, the workers trying to uh, do deals, but to prosecute our demands. And for those, and you hear this in the news and uh, in, in, in the movement, who say that leadership doesn't matter, you know, um, well, it's a concrete question. I'll give you an example. At the present time, there's a number of union elections coming up in Unite, a big union, uh, which are currently with the left a leadership in unison, uh, the leadership of which in the past period, in my opinion, has played the critical role in avoiding struggle and taking struggle down uh, uh, the back alleys of conciliationism and compromise. And it was mentioned by Josh, there is a rank and file socialist candidate, Paul Holmes, standing at the present time on a socialist programme. And I think we have to say, you know, to those who um, are standing in that election with no hope of winning and, and really effectively splitting the left vote, we would ask you not to do it, to step aside because the consequences are grim not just for Unison members, but for the class in general, the opportunity of a left leadership and Unison would take this movement forward really, really strongly. In terms of Unite, I don't have much to say on that. I would simply make the point that as far as I understand, there are three potential left candidates at the present time. And there is a worry of that opening up the door to the right wing. And again, Unite, but in, in the leadership with all its failings, has been a left leadership. And I, I would just hope that that situation is actually sorted out. But, you know, it's not business as usual. In terms of the role of Marxists in, in, in the coming period, uh, it's going to be critical. There's massive potential for change and to get and a massive uh, uh, potential for campaigns. And in the coming period, and I think this is a point um, you know, I'll finish on this and, you know, maybe one or two other quick points, is that the coming period is going to present major problems for the movement. It's also going to present major opportunities. Let me give you just this one example. The National Health Service is probably the greatest gain the working class made on the basis of generation of struggle. And by the way, it wasn't just handed to us, by the way. Uh, people fought for that for many, many generations. We are now posed with the full privatisation of the National Health Service, uh, 
whether or not, incidentally, there's a trade deal. And let me make this point very uh, quickly. Whether it's Trump or Biden, the American insurance companies will want access to the National Health Service. Now, that process has been going on for decades now of cutting up the National Health Service. But as of yet, the official movement, we haven't seen one, one day of generalised strike action and defence of the National Health Service. So what I would say is that the demand for mass-coordinated campaigns in action should be raised in all unions, and it should be the policy of the TUC to defend the National Health Service through such campaigns and such uh, actions. I think my time is coming very near the end. I'm going to have to move on slightly. I just want to uh, make the point about there are some pillars, if you like, for, or, uh, for Marxists to involve themselves in the trade union movement. You know, a firm grasp, I believe, of education and theory, but more than anything, it's get involved in the movement uh, itself. I think um, we oppose conciliationism. We want to build up the broad left's socialist program on the basis of socialist programs and individual unions and across uh, the wider uh, movement. And I'll finish really on this point. In the coming period, that understanding of the necessity to transform society will get a receptive audience amongst uh, hundreds, thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of workers. The work of the trade unions has to be conducted on a consistent and patient basis. It has to be open work. It has to be working with others while sticking to the firm principles, firm socialist principles. Most of all, in some respects, it means listening to the workers. What are their fears? What are their aspirations? And how can we articulate their anger? How can we articulate their demands for, for a better life? Always having an appreciation of the balance of class, class forces at any given time, but the determination to fight, not just to defend workers, but to, in, in, in fact, fight for a socialist society. So as a crisis of leadership, there's a crisis of leadership in the official movement, but also in the revolutionary organizations uh, 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 as well. Some who call themselves Marxists because of the pressure of events just aren't up to the job. And that is why, you know, I think um, meetings like this are so important, but we go forward, not just with a shallow optimism in, in the future, but an absolute confidence if we do our work correctly, we cannot just defend workers and win gains, we can transform society. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.